Good morning. In today's headlines, former President Trump promises rosier days ahead of, to voters in Iowa and drops some bad news for those hoping to see him in the third GOP debate. Texas AG Ken Paxton makes his first public comments since his acquittal. It comes with accusations against the Biden administration and its motivation. The Senate confirms the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The vote follows a hold of more than 300 promotions by Senator Tommy Tuberville. We have the Senator's comments. A potential government shutdown is only 10 days away. We speak with a financial analyst to find out what it means if that does happen. Thousands of parents in Canada making their voices heard about so-called gender identity in schools. We have details on the cross-country rallies. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is September 21st. And first, we have some really exciting news to tell everybody. That's right. We're extending our morning show to an hour and a half. That's right. Our team is working hard to bring you more content and to keep you informed. Yeah, it is really exciting. And now we're going to start off with our top news, which is in the political arena. That's, that's true, because former President Donald Trump is in Iowa, kicking off what his campaign is calling a weeks-long blitz in the first in the nation caucus state. He spoke to voters in Makot, Kedah, and Dubuque about his administration's achievements. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. You're longing for the good old days with the greatest economy ever, and all those things, but... but. Former President Trump building his case for another term in office, speaking to locals in Iowa's corn country. Remember I told you I made great deals. I, I don't even talk about China because of COVID, but I made one of the greatest deals ever with USMCA, but the, maybe the best was China. $50 billion, and do you remember it? And you had to stay with me. The farmers I'm talking about, mostly in this case, less, less the manufacturers, they were there anyway. But they were the most loyal people. The farmers were the most loyal people, and they said, Sir, we're with you. I said, I'm going to get you all sorts of subsidies from China. They said, sir, we don't want subsidies. We just want a level playing field. Issuing a warning of potential perils under Biden. November of next year, we're like, wow, just a little bit more than a year. But a lot of bad things can happen in a year. Tremendously bad things can happen in a year. And a lot of stupid decisions can be made and criticizing President Biden's policies, naming inflation as a top concern, and harking back to the lower fuel prices during his administration. But now it's hitting $5 again, and uh, we're, not gonna let, we're not gonna let it happen because that is what caused inflation, and inflation is called a country buster. The former president naming his achievements in international diplomacy including negotiations with Mexico over the wall, France over tariffs, and Putin over invading Ukraine. I used to talk to Putin about it. I'd say, uh, you can't do it. You know, it was the apple of his eye, I will tell you. That I knew. But what, uh, I made it the unapple of his eye because I said, uh, bad things are going to happen if you do that. And he didn't do it. He only started doing this after I was gone. All of a sudden, you see troops building up. Would have never done it and a message of hope. Many people ask me that question. They say, how do, you, how do you do it? And I do it because I feel real love and I feel real appreciation. And I do it because it's more important than anything else I could do. 
Iowa's in-person caucuses, which kick off the GOP's first statewide vote to select their next presidential nominee, will be held on January 15th of next year. Current polls show the former president with a commanding lead. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The third time apparently won't be the charm for former President Donald Trump in GOP debates. Trump reportedly has no plans to attend the third presidential debate to be held in Miami in early November. The news comes after sources also said he won't be taking part in the second debate in California next week. The former president will instead travel to Detroit to deliver a speech to an audience that will include current and former union members. The primetime appearance will serve as counter-programming to the GOP debate. Trump has questioned the purpose of attending the debates due to his large lead over his Republican rivals. The real clear politics average of polls has him up by more than 46 percentage points over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his closest challenger. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says he believes the Biden administration was behind his recent impeachment. That was in an exclusive interview with Tucker Carlson released on X. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Paxton's first public comments since being acquitted on 16 charges. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton described the impeachment process as horrible in his interview with Tucker Carlson and says he believes it was an attempt to get him out of the way by the Biden administration. They hired, I think it was four lawyers. Two of them came from the Biden DOJ. That's not an accident. They were sent there. Paxton was suspended without pay and issued a gag order during the impeachment proceedings, despite no evidence or witnesses being presented. He's missed half of his third term due to the suspension since being reelected last year. They should have to prove something before the will of the voters is overridden. The Texas AG has brought 48 lawsuits against the Biden administration, with what Paxton says is a 77% win rate. And then you have these other forces come in with the Rove and the TLR, Texas for Lawsuit Reform Group, and that was the power. And, and by the way, Texas for Lawsuit Reform gave lots of money to House members and lots of money to senators. So they have a lot of influence. They give more money to Republican members than any other group or any other single donor. Almost every single one of those Republicans that voted against me got money from Texas for Lawsuit Reform a lot. Paxton says he was met with opposition from the Republican Texas House Speaker when trying to investigate voter fraud in the state and alleges he was selected by the Texas House Democrat bloc and a few GOP detractors. If you can do impeachments like this and you can have mail-in ballots, we don't have democracy. We have control by a few people. He says things really got heated when he started challenging big tech and pharma. The federal government has this, this immunity for them. And I'm like, this is wrong. They didn't test this thing and then they didn't tell us about those side effects. They had an obligation to test it, even if they weren't liable. Paxton says he's feeling re-energized after his acquittal and suggested a future run for the U.S. Senate was on the table. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, will be appearing in a federal court in Wilmington, Delaware on October 3rd. He's facing federal gun charges in the first ever prosecution of a sitting U.S. president's child. Hunter Biden was indicted last week for allegedly lying on a form to acquire a handgun in 2018 and for being an illegal drug user in possession of the gun. His lawyer has said he plans to plead not guilty. Hunter Biden sought to avoid traveling to Delaware to appear for the hearing in person, arguing it would pose logistical challenges. But the judge in the case rejected his request to appear by video. Special counsel David Weiss is prosecuting the case. He also opposed allowing Hunter Biden to appear by video for the routine proceeding. 
Weiss said an in-person hearing would promote the public's confidence that younger Biden is being treated consistently with other defendants. Is there a two-tiered justice system? Attorney General Merrick Garland doesn't think so. He defended the DOJ at a hearing yesterday. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has reactions from lawmakers. At a hearing Wednesday, a special committee led by Republicans set out to get answers to questions about the weaponization of the Department of Justice, questions about investigations of former President Trump, Hunter Biden, and Catholic churches. Attorney General Merrick Garland defending the department and maintaining that all investigations are conducted fairly and equally. With liberty and Chairman Jim Jordan expressing concerns about the fairness of the Hunter Biden investigation. Four and a half years the Department of Justice has been investigating Mr. Biden, an investigation run by David Weiss, an investigation that limited the number of witnesses agents could interview, an investigation that prohibited agents from referring to the president as the, quote, big guy in any of the interviews they did get to do. He accused the DOJ of protecting Hunter Biden, but attacking former President Trump. Look at the classified documents case. Spring and early summer of last year, the Department of Justice asked President Trump to turn over boxes of documents. He does just that. In the process, President Trump finds 38 additional documents. He tells the Department of Justice, the very next day the FBI comes to his home and he turns them over. Everything they asked him to do, he did. And then what's the Justice Department do? August 8th, last year, they raid President Trump's home. Other Republican lawmakers had similar questions. They see the DOJ, of course, aggressively prosecuting President Biden's chief political rival, Mr. Trump, while at the same time, they see slow walking and special treatment given to the president's son. Why has the Justice Department dragged this investigation out for so long? Mr. Weiss was a longtime career prosecutor. President Trump appointed him as the... You're not answering the question. Is that standard procedure? Should it take that long to make such a simple determination? Garland maintained that Trump-appointed A.G. David Weiss had full authority to investigate Hunter Biden and that he had not questioned Weiss on how that was being done. Meanwhile, Democrat lawmakers are saying this. Mr. Jordan, who has uh, evaded the subpoena for 500 days has, and it has the nerve to have this committee hearing uh, whose sole purpose is to defend Donald Trump and to cast aspersions on the investigation of Donald Trump by the Justice Department. Representative Jeff Van Drew called attention to agents investigating Catholic churches. Yes the idea no. that someone with my family background would discriminate against any religion is so outrageous, Mr. so absurd. Mr. Attorney General, it was your FBI your that did this. Some Democrat lawmakers applauded Garland and the DOJ. Well, there is no doubt that the uh, Department of Justice under General Garland has the ultimate of integrity. Uh, there is no uh, political bias, no bias toward uh, anyone because of their power or their wealth. At the end of the day, if you hear him very carefully, what he's saying is nobody in this country is above the law. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Stay with us. The White House is sending more military personnel to the border amid the recent migrant surge. Meanwhile, Venezuelan immigrants get some good news. Will it please Republicans? And Italy's prime minister calls for a global war on human trafficking at the UN General Assembly. She says Italy will be on the front lines on the issue.
Welcome back. 2,000 workers are now at a standstill at a General Motors plant in Kansas. GM has closed its Fairfax assembly plant as a result of the week-old UAW strike. The targeted strike of three plants nationwide has had a rippling effect. Since one of the three striking factories supplies Fairfax with parts, there's currently nothing for workers to do there. GM says the workers there won't be eligible for supplemental unemployment benefits either. Both sides continue negotiations for a new contract. And now we hear an economist's view on how the auto worker strikes will affect the overall competitiveness of the companies as union workers say they're trying to recoup losses in the form of concessions to the automakers in the 2008 recession. Diana Furchgott Roth, the director of the Center for Energy, Climate and Environment at the Heritage Foundation, joins us live. Good morning, Diana. It's good to have you with us. It's great to be with you. In your view, will the UAW union's demands make the big three automakers less competitive than their non-union counterparts like Toyota and Honda? Well, they are already less competitive. And I think what's making them less competitive is President Biden, his, who's saying that we need to have 60% of new vehicle sales be electric by 2030, because the United Auto Workers are making the cars that all of us buy. The best-selling car in the United States, believe it or not, is the Ford F-150 pickup truck. And the lightning version of that, the electric version, costs 29,000 more, and it doesn't tow as much stuff. So President Biden, by phasing out the internal combustion engine and driving these jobs to China, is making the jobs less competitive. I see, taking the appeal away from Ford's flagship model could be a challenge here. The auto workers union said that they're just trying to recoup their losses, maybe pensions that they lost in 2008 during these bankruptcies that the automakers went through in the recession. But the automakers say that the union wage benefits are going to make them less competitive. So how, how do we balance this here? There's a lot of wage pressures. They're asking for a lot of money. But look, American Airlines got 40 percent over four years. UPS got 40 percent over four years. These demands are large agreed, but they're not out of line with what other companies are getting. And that's what the UAW sees. And it's President Biden's fault that inflation is so high. He's the one that came in to office saying he was going to ban fossil fuels. He was going to get rid of fossil fuels. Well, what happens when you get rid of oil and natural gas? Energy prices go up. What happens when energy prices go up? Inflation goes up. And this is what every worker is facing today the whittling away of their paychecks. Right, and now they're faced with about $500 a week when they're striking, so that's obviously creating more pressures on them. And you mentioned this 40% pay increase. Would that hamper the automaker's ability to sell vehicles at market price? I think it very well would, but another thing that's hampering the ability to sell at market price is that automakers are, are charging more for the cars everyone wants to buy the SUVs, the pickup trucks, the minivans, the sedans, and less for the electric vehicles that they are being required to sell by law. And they're going to be required to sell more and more of these. And in order to get people to buy these EVs, which some people do not want to buy, they have to price them lower. And to price them lower, they have to price the other vehicles higher. And that disproportionately affects farmers, small businesses, poor people who cannot afford to buy these expensive electric vehicles. I mean, President Biden, if he's standing up for the auto workers, which he says he is, he needs to roll back his EV mandate. He needs to allow more oil and gas drilling to lower prices of energy, 
to basically calm this labor market down. So Diana, given that the two sides are apparently far apart on negotiations, how long do you expect this strike to last? Well, uh, it could be over next week. It could last many months. No one knows how, how long it's going to last, but this is cataclysmic for the Democratic Party. This is the blues against the greens. It's a fragile coalition of blue-collar workers and green environmentalists. And this coalition is fracturing. And this is going to be the winter of discontent as the energy mandates come up against the needs of the blue-collar workers for solid jobs and low inflation. Well, thank you for your in-depth analysis. Diana Furchgott-Roth at the Heritage Foundation, I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. And turning to immigration now, the Biden administration said yesterday it's granting temporary legal status to hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans currently in the country. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the decision. The move comes with promises to also accelerate work permits for many migrants. That should appease some Democratic leaders who have been clamoring for the White House to do more on immigration, while providing Republicans with more ammunition to criticize a president they see as too lax on illegal immigration. The DHS plans to grant temporary protected status to about 470,000 Venezuelans who arrived in the country as of July 31, 2023. That's in addition to around 240,000 Venezuelans who already qualified for temporary status before Wednesday's announcement. The new status will make it easier for them to get authorization to work in the U.S. That's been a key demand of Democratic mayors and governors who say they're struggling to provide for an increased number of migrants in their care. Uh, there is no New York Mayor Eric Adams praised the decision to grant protections to Venezuelans and thanked the administration for listening to the city's concerns. The promise of accelerated work permits does not apply to people who cross the border illegally and claim asylum, who by law must wait for six months to receive work permits. The announcement came on the same day as a mass of Venezuelans flooded into Eagle Pass, Texas. Their numbers overwhelming officials who had to close the main bridge to focus on processing. The Biden administration says it's sending 800 new military personnel to the southern border amid the recent migrant surge. They'll be joining the 2,500 National Guard members already in place. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni called for a global war against human trafficking at the UN General Assembly yesterday. She also said Russia's war in Ukraine is causing a domino effect that impacts nations of the global south. The Italian Prime Minister is asking for international help over Italy's illegal immigration crisis. The Italian government passed new measures on Monday to lengthen the time illegal immigrants can be detained and to make sure they're repatriated. That's after close to 10,000 migrants reached the southern Italian island of Lampedusa last week. In her speech, Maloney condemned those that prey and profit of migrants and said it's the duty of the organization to reject any hypocritical approach to the issue. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the UN Security Council yesterday. He urged the UN to end the war in Ukraine. Zelensky's speech drew backlash from Russia's ambassador who attended the meeting. Entities cost Temenes has more. Zelensky made his first in-person appearance before the United Nations Security Council on Wednesday. He called for Russia to be stripped of its veto power. In cases of mass atrocities against human rights, 
Veto power should be voluntarily suspended, but we can also observe that Russia will not give up this stolen privilege voluntarily. He added that the UN's lack of intervention in the conflict greatly diminished its public standing. Zelensky said any proposed peace plan would not come to fruition as long as Russia has the power to veto. Zelensky's remarks drew criticism from Russian UN Ambassador Vasily Nebenzia, who called for Zelensky to speak after per protocols, instead of before the other members of the Security Council. Nebenzia's remarks were rebutted by Albanian Prime Minister Edi Rama, who chaired the meeting saying that for Zelensky not to take the floor, Russia would need to end the war. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov later remarked before the Council that Zelensky was put into power by a coup from the West, and that Moscow was forced to intervene to stop the criminal actions of the Kyiv regime. Lavrov also accused the UN of being a tool for Washington to advance its own agenda. Neither Lavrov nor Zelensky were present in the chamber at the same time during the talks. Lavrov's remarks were preceded by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who accused Russia of war crimes. After the Ukraine briefing, some U.S. senators weighed in on the issue. The only way Putin wins this is for us to blink. He is going to lose. He is going to lose on the battlefield. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing all of these people in that room for the administration applaud Congress for being so generous. This isn't our money, for heaven's sake. It's not our, we're not being generous. It's the American people's money. And they spent 115 billion of it. And so far they have basically nothing to show for it. Zelensky is set to meet with President Biden later on Thursday. Both are expected to push for more funding for Ukraine amid objections from some House Republicans. Cost MNS, NTD News. Poland says it will honor previously agreed supplies of ammunition and armaments to Ukraine. It follows an earlier announcement by Poland's prime minister, who said will no longer supply Ukraine with weapons. The decision to stop supplying weapons came during a dispute over grain exports and followed Ukrainian President Zelensky's address before the UN General Assembly on Tuesday. Poland's prime minister said instead of sending weapons to Ukraine, his country will focus on arming itself. The escalating dispute stems from a grain trade crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Poland says Ukrainian oligarchs flooded the Polish market with Ukrainian grain to the detriment of Polish farmers. Warsaw has been one of Kyiv's staunchest allies since the start of the conflict in February 2022. It has donated a wide range of weaponry to Kyiv, including modern Leopard 2 tanks and Soviet-era fighter jets. Poland also provided military training to Ukraine's armed forces and is hosting around 1 million Ukrainian refugees. And now we are heading to Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. India's visa processing centre in Canada suspended services today as a rift widened between the two countries. This comes after Canada's leader said India may have been involved in the killing of a Canadian citizen. Yesterday, India's foreign ministry issued an updated travel advisory urging its citizens travelling or studying in Canada to be cautious. Syrian President Bashar Assad arrived in China on his first visit to the country since the start of Syria's 12-year conflict. He's trying to end more than a decade of diplomatic isolation amid Western sanctions. Assad is scheduled to meet Chinese leader Xi Jinping for a bilateral summit. China continues to be one of Assad's main backers.
The son of jailed Hong Kong media mogul Jimmy Lai said he did not want to see his father die in detention. It comes after his lawyers raised the prospect that his trial may be pushed back indefinitely. Sebastian Lai also slammed the UK government for what he called its shameful lack of action in helping his father, who is a British national. The European Council president yesterday called on China to help end the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Charles Michael asked China to join forces to convince Russia to respect the principles of the UN Charter. China has abstained from votes by the General Assembly that demanded Moscow withdraw its troops from Ukraine. That's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you, Malcolm. Well, Canada, India news usually has democratic nations in an uproar. Right, and now the U.S. is courting India as a counterbalance to China. Oh, well, I guess that puts U.S. in kind of an awkward spot. We'll have to see how this plays out. Yeah. More for you coming up. After a months-long blockade, the U.S. Senate finally confirms someone for the highest military position in the country. And House Speaker McCarthy says there is progress in efforts to stave off a government shutdown. We speak with a financial analyst about the possible impacts of a shutdown. A drop in natural gas heating prices bringing relief this winter season. But how many Americans will see benefits? We hear more from Entity Business host Don Ma in just a minute. Good to have you back. Well, the looming government shutdown is still looming, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is signaling some hope within his conference. McCarthy said lawmakers were very close to passing a continuing resolution, or CR, that's a short-term agreement to keep the government running. Congress only has 10 more days to pass a CR and send it to President Biden for his approval. McCarthy also said House Republicans will try again to move forward with a vote on defense spending today. Earlier this week, five Republicans defeated a debate vote, the defense spending bill, which is part of the year-long spending measure. Still, if McCarthy is able to get members to unify behind the plan, it is likely to be rough going in the Democrat-controlled Senate. So where do we stand right now with the spending bill? And what would a government shutdown mean? We bring in Michael Busler. He's a finance professor at the Stockton University. It's great to have you early this morning. Good morning. Now, to start, we're moving closer to the deadline. Can you start by briefly explaining where the bills are getting stuck right now and what are the tensions there? So um, right now, the um, Republican-led House of Representatives uh, has passed or is about to pass a continuing resolution. The problem is uh, what they pass has to get through the Senate and then signed by the president. You may recall last year, the House of Representatives did pass a uh, continuing resolution. However, the Democrat-led Senate did not uh, vote for it. And as a result, McCarthy had to go back to the House of Representatives and ended up working with the Democrats and the moderate Republicans uh, to get something that the Democrats in the Senate would would sign. The Republican uh, conservatives in the uh, House didn't like what, what happened, and they said, we're not going to let this happen again. Uh, so it's very difficult now to predict what exactly is going to happen. Right. And now many are looking at a possible, as mentioned, government shutdown. So what would be the impact of that? 
So I think at this point, I, I think a, a shutdown looks likely. Uh, so what would be the impact? You may recall we had about a 35-day shutdown in um, the fall of 2018. We had one in 2011. So what happens is um, the non-essential services of the government shuts down. People will still get paid Social Security. They'll still get paid Medicare. Most of the essential services will, will still operate. What won't operate are things if you apply for a Social Security card or you're applying for a passport, which is also which is already somewhat of a nightmare. But if you apply for a passport, if you want to go to one of the state, the uh, national parks, rather, those kind of things will will be closed. Surprisingly, as the uh, in 2018, during the shutdown, uh, after the 30, 35 days, people were saying, well, this really is not that bad. We're um, surviving we're getting along we'd like the government to reopen um, but we've been able to live with the shutdown uh, thus far so would you argue like you said for instance the national park workers would you say uh, because many workers will be fur furloughed uh, during that time so would you say it's comparable to last time what what is your um, what do you expect in e economical implications so, so from the um, economy standpoint, it doesn't have a large negative effect on the uh, economy. It's probably negligible, but it's a, it's very inconvenient for a lot of Americans. And there will be some government uh, workers that will be laid off. And to lose a month's worth of uh, salary is very difficult. Look, we, we'd like the, the House of Representatives and the Senate to be able to work together to come up with something that makes sense for, for everybody. The hardliners in the House and the hardliners in, in the Senate uh, seem to be blocking things. So what happened last time and what may happen this time is the moderates get together and come up with something uh, that both at least sides can uh, live with and something gets signed and we end uh, a shutdown or avoid a shutdown and the government can function. The government is supposed to be able to function even if you have different uh, opinions and different views on things. We should be able to come up with the, in the spirit of compromise to come up with something that everybody can live with and we can move the government uh, forward. It's really uh, uh, looking very bad when the government just simply can't function. Right. Well, let's hope that this gets resolved soon. Thank you so much, Michael Buzla. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Always my pleasure to be here. Turning to defense news, a senior military confirmation coming out of the Senate following a months-long blockade. The Senate on Wednesday confirmed the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Under the previous order, the motion to reconsider is made and laid upon the table and the president will be immediately notified of the Senate's actions. In a vote of 83 to 11, the Senate on Wednesday confirmed General C.Q. Brown as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's the highest military position in America. The vote follows a months-long hold of more than 300 military promotions by Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. Tuberville is holding up votes over his opposition to a Pentagon policy reimbursing travel costs for service members who go out of state for abortions. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer again slammed Tuberville for the blockade on Wednesday and said the Senate will confront his obstruction head-on. Tuberville has refused to drop his holds, insisting instead that Schumer set up individual votes on each nominee. Schumer ultimately caved to Tuberville's demand and agreed to have three positions voted on separately rather than as part of the block held up by Tuberville. 
On Thursday, the Senate will take votes to confirm the new Army Chief of Staff and the new Marine Corps Commandant. We finally came to a little bit of conclusion, but it's about time. Uh, we should have done these a long time ago, but we're making progress. Uh, again, I still have my holds, and we'll continue to do that. Now we might bring some more up uh, ourselves, you know, through our petition that, that uh, we're able to get now, but it's, uh, I'm glad we're making some progress. It's just, uh, it's a win for the legislative branch. Brown is currently the chief of staff of the Air Force. Before that, he served as the commander of Pacific Air Forces, the air component of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. He also commanded a fighter squadron, two fighter wings, U.S. Air Force's Central Command, and the U.S. Air Force Weapons School. So now we're going to get some business updates. Winter is expected to be costlier for those who heat with oil, but natural gas users will finally get a break. Here to discuss this is NTD Business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. It's great to have you with us again. Yeah, good morning, Kevin, as always. So how many Americans will this impact and how much relief will we see this winter season? Um, yeah, this will impact actually millions of Americans. Natural gas heating is used in nearly half of homes in the United States. And for them, it's expected to cost an average of $726 this winter. And this amount, Kevin, is actually down nearly 8% uh, compared to last year. Now, this is according to the National Energy Assistant Directors Association. Um, so, yeah, that's for people using natural gas to heat their homes. But those using home heating oil will likely get hit by higher costs, unfortunately, uh, because uh, the cost is expected to jump an average of over $2,200, up 8.7% from last year. Uh, and the reason for this, Kevin, is partly because of the rise in oil prices due to uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia cutting back on petroleum production. And Kevin, let me just uh, give you some extra numbers here. Uh, heating with propane is expected to cost an average of 1500 up around 4% from last season. Uh, electricity, which is actually the second most uh, common source of heat, is projected to cost an average of over $1,300, up 1.2%. Uh, Kevin? Well, hopefully it's not too cold this winter so give those people who heat with oil a little break. So how do these numbers compare to prices during the pandemic? Actually, you know, Kevin, uh, even with the projected drop in natural gas heating costs, family, families are actually still shelling out far more than they were in the winter of 2020 and 2021. Uh, during that time, it actually only cost them f around $573 on average uh, for the season. Those using heating oil have seen their costs skyrocket since then. And, and the bad news is that according to the association, we're not seeing the prices we saw four years ago. And for the foreseeable future, home energy is going to be expensive. And, you know, on top of that, Congress, it seems like, uh, is not expected to continue providing the significant funding boosts for the low-income uh, home energy assistance program that it has in recent years. Uh, the National Energy uh, Assistance Directors Association says that, you know, there's simply just not enough money. Just seems like we need to get more fossil fuels in the supply, or maybe people have to start putting uh, solar panels on. So do you have anything else for us, Don? Yeah, uh, FedEx uh, reported improved first quarter fiscal earnings compared to the same time last year. They attributed to the threatened U strike by UPS workers uh, and the bankruptcy of Yellow Corporation Trucking. The uncertainty of UPS negotiations drove uh, many companies to shift their business to FedEx, actually. Um, it's a short update from me this morning. That's it. 
Yeah, thanks, Don. It looks like we just see some cause and effect there. Is there any way to predict those kind of things? I mean, if you see yellows going under, you, you would think that the market's going to go somewhere. Well, you know, there's always there's always signs to when a company is not doing well. It, it's just a matter of if we're looking at those signs. I mean, uh, to the average person, maybe they won't see it coming. But, you know, investors, people who have money in the company, they should see it coming. Yeah, they keep a close eye on these things. All right, Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, yellow, that was a big deal, right? And, I mean, FedEx, uh, uh, well, they say their ground division is doing well. Yeah, it's interesting how they're able to actually continue to make progress, even though demand for shipping was actually going down a little bit. Mm. So coming up next, a man arrested for the killing of an L.A. deputy sheriff has pleaded not guilty. The officer was killed on Monday while waiting at a red light. And five Virginia families take a local school board to court. They say critical race theory is forcing kids to see color first. That story and more after the break. Welcome back. The Los Angeles man accused of killing a de sheriff's deputy as he waited at a red traffic light has pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Deputy Ryan Klinkenbrumer was fatally shot on Monday. 29-year-old Kevin Cataneo Salazar was charged with one count of murder plus special circumstance allegations of murder of a peace officer as well as murder committed by lying in wait, murder committed by firing from a car, and personal use of a firearm. The suspect was arrested the same day. That was following an hours-long standoff with sheriff's deputies after barricading himself inside his family's Palm Dane home. And according to his attorney and family members, Salazar was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and attempted suicide twice. No motive for the killing has been released by authorities. A preliminary hearing is set for November 7th. If convicted, he faces life in prison. And switching up gears a little bit, here are the latest headlines. Police in Boulder, Colorado arrested a man after he allegedly used his truck to damage property and also tried to run several people over. Bruce Alvey faces four counts of attempted murder and other charges. There were no significant injuries. A COVID outbreak is causing comedians Steve Martin and Martin Shorts to cancel their sold-out weekend shows in Las Vegas. Their announcement comes shortly after Jimmy Kimmel tested positive for COVID, forcing him to cancel his Las Vegas show with Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert. President Biden issued an executive order directing the appointment of a disaster recovery coordinator for the Ohio train derailment. The White House said the post will be filled in the next five days. The Justice Department and Ohio have sued Norfolk Southern Railroad, seeking to recoup losses tied to the accident. Five Virginia families are calling out a local school board for discrimination due to its critical race theory curriculum. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on their lawsuit. Attorney Kate Anderson says the Albemarle County School District's so-called anti-racism policy was forcing students to view each other purely based on race. It was personalizing and really blaming students based on their race. What they could achieve in life was centered on their race. According to Anderson, the school district made it clear critical race theory was going to be infused in every classroom at every grade throughout the district. 
they've told teachers that they need to be trained in this and part of that training was to teach teachers that they needed to view kids differently based on their race, teach them differently, that it would impact grading and discipline. Kids had to create vision statements as part of the pilot program. Saying how they were going to sound more anti-racist, act more anti-racist, things that compelled their speech. Um, and it was made clear through these activities that the oppressors were white Christian male students and that the oppressed were everybody else. Um, and so it was teaching kids that they share some guilt just because of the color of their skin or that they can't achieve things in life because of the color of their skin. One of the students in the case is multiracial with Native American, white, and African American heritage. His mom says she heard him internalizing negative stereotypes about his own background for the first time as he was going through the program. This after she says she worked so hard to make sure he was proud of and saw the beauty in his heritage. One of the families, the Abanez family, emigrated from Panama. Anderson says their daughter was shown a video and taught in class. That uh, because of the color of her skin, she couldn't achieve things in life. And that came in the form of a video telling her that only white kids can get good jobs, go to good schools, live in big houses. That if you're not white, you can't achieve things. According to Anderson, the school's critical race theory curriculum is tough on Christians. The critical race theory lessons that were being taught not only said that white children were the oppressors, but they said that Christianity was the um, superior oppressive group. And so they were telling kids, separating them based on both their race and religion. The case is Abanez versus Albemarle County School Board. The families are represented by the legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom. The goal is to have the racially divisive curriculum removed from schools. A hearing was held by an appeals court last week. A decision is expected to take a few months. NTD reached out to Albemarle County School Board for comment and is waiting to hear back from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, stress and anxiety are problems that affect millions of Americans every day. We talked to a health expert to find out some ways to deal with these issues when we come back. It's good to have you back with us. Anxiety is something we all feel from time to time, especially during the last few years. That's right. To learn more about combating stress and anxiety in daily life, I spoke with a health expert and chiropractor about the issue. Make sure that individuals don't think that a diagnosis is a life sentence. That is a big issue right now that we're seeing is that people feel like just because they were told they have something or they feel that they have something, that they have to learn to live with it. The first thing that we have found that really helps, especially with the latest research coming out of uh, some of the best universities, is meditation. You know, meditation allows anxiety to reduce primarily because it allows you to focus on your breathing. Sometimes the problem with anxiety is that we're breathing very shallow and a meditation helps you breathe very deep. Then second, it gives you the opportunity to focus on something different than the problem that is causing the anxiety. So you can do a guided meditation on something positive and that's gonna give you some help. And the last one is the visualization. That means that when you're anxious, it's usually because you're expecting a negative outcome. So if you just begin to think that, you know what, 
I'm going to shift that mindset and think that's going to work out properly. That was a blessing in disguise. This is the best thing that happened to me that I lost my job. Now I can do really what I want to do. Those are the things that I tell them because it really helps. Mm, that's great. It's not a life sentence. I'm really taking that with me. And uh, so once let's talk about somebody that's maybe in that situation. Um, once somebody feels like that feeling of fear, let's say, is getting a hold of them, how should they or can they respond in that moment? Let's say somebody lost their job. Now, that can be very stressful because you have bills to pay. You may have a family to feed. But at the same time, 70% of Americans are being told that, I mean, we're being told that they're not even engaged or even like where they work. So why not look at that? The first thing we do is we look at it not as a problem, but what is the opportunity here? That's the first thing that we need to do. Do not let the activity, the circumstances, determine your response immediately, but take a breath, look at it and say, okay, now that I don't have no longer that job, what can I do now that I've been thinking about doing for the last five years, three years, 10 years, whatever, and is there something out there where I can make revenue that would allow me to su supplement what it is that I'm missing instead of feeling like, what am I going to do? Am I going to be unemployed? I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my relationship. And my kids are going to hate me because I can't feed them or buy them anything they need. Mm, understood. Also, in a way, to stay solution-focused and rational. Um, now, any we just talked about habits to include. Are there any daily habits to kick to reduce anxiety? One of the things that for over 35 years I've been recommending my patients is you begin your day with physical exercise because during activity it's very difficult to be in a mental state of depression or anxiety. So the first thing you do is you act, do an activity. So now if you're not into exercising, which we know all the benefits of exercise, then do something you love. If you have a hobby, let's say you love to draw, do drawing. If you like to sew, then sew. If you like to paint, then paint. Whatever it is that you like to do, do something that you love, but engage in activity. That's one thing that we have found that can really help an individual get rid of the anxiety. Well, thank you so much for all these great tips and insights. I really appreciate that today, Dr. Fat Mancini. Thank you. Yeah, I think that was pretty interesting as also, you know, that people should always be aware of how much power they actually have over their own lives and to take back control. If something goes wrong, you know, it's not a life sentence, as he says. Right, yeah, and it's so important to have good mental health personally and for the community as a whole. Yeah, exactly. Well, also, this is something new now. We actually have, don't go anywhere because we are going over an hour now. This is our second part of the show and of our broadcast. Yeah, stay with us for some more coverage coming up, including some great interviews. Trump held a re-election rally in Iowa yesterday. What's he saying to potential voters in the early caucus state? President Biden meeting with leaders of Israel and Brazil amid tensions with both countries. We will bring you what leaders talk about as they try to find common ground. Thousands of parents in Canada making their voices heard about so-called gender identity in schools. We have details on the cross-country rallies. A potential government shutdown is only 10 days away. We speak with a financial analyst to find out what it means if that does happen. And music lovers are investing more in vinyl. Find out what's causing the increased popularity.
Hello again and welcome back to NTD Good Morning. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning again. I'm Evelyn Lee. Let's get to our update on politics. Right. Former President Donald Trump is in Iowa kicking off what his campaign is calling a weeks-long blitz in the first of the nation caucus state. He spoke to voters in Maquoketa and Dubuque about his administration's achievements. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. You're longing for the good old days with the greatest economy ever and all those things, but... but. Former President Trump building his case for another term in office, speaking to locals in Iowa's corn country. Remember I told you I made great deals. I, I don't even talk about China because of COVID, but I made one of the greatest deals ever with USMCA, but the, maybe the best was China. $50 billion, and remember it, and you had to stay with me, the farmers I'm talking about, mostly in this case, less, less the manufacturers, they were there anyway, but they were the most loyal people. The farmers were the most loyal people, and they said, Sir, we're with you. I said, I'm going to get you all sorts of subsidies from China. They said, sir, we don't want subsidies. We just want a level playing field. Issuing a warning of potential perils under Biden. November of next year, we're like, wow, just a little bit more than a year. But a lot of bad things can happen in a year. Tremendously bad things can happen in a year. And a lot of stupid decisions can be made and criticizing President Biden's policies, naming inflation as a top concern, and harking back to the lower fuel prices during his administration. But now it's hitting $5 again, and uh, we're, not gonna let, we're not gonna let it happen because that is what caused inflation, and inflation is called a country buster. The former president naming his achievements in international diplomacy including negotiations with Mexico over the wall, France over tariffs, and Putin over invading Ukraine. I used to talk to Putin about it. I'd say, uh, you can't do it. You know, it was the apple of his eye, I will tell you. That I knew. But what, uh, I made it the unapple of his eye because I said, uh, bad things are going to happen if you do that. And he didn't do it. He only started doing this after I was gone. All of a sudden, you see troops building up. Would have never done it and a message of hope. Many people ask me that question. They say, how do, you, how do you do it? And I do it because I feel real love and I feel real appreciation. And I do it because it's more important than anything else I could do. Iowa's in-person caucuses, which kick off the GOP's first statewide vote to select their next presidential nominee, will be held on January 15th of next year. Current polls show the former president with a commanding lead. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now for a little insight into the importance of Iowa in selecting a party's nominee. Since 1972, the state has held the first nominating contest in the race for the White House. I wanted to learn more about how a good performance in Iowa can translate into a strong campaign, so I spoke with an author who has been following the 2024 election very closely. Joining me now is Roger Simon, columnist for the Epic Times and director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024, as well as author of American Refugees. Roger, thank you for coming on the show this morning. Glad to be here. American Refugees, a uh, personal note, is coming out uh, 31 October and has a big quote from Tucker Carlson. You can read it online at Amazon. I won't say any more. Yeah, that's a good little tease for us. Now, Iowa caucuses are the first major event in the presidential primaries and caucuses. So please tell us, why is it so important for candidates to do well there? 
Well, first of all, it's the first thing to happen. Secondly, it's the most democratic thing that happens. I attended them in 16, and I would recommend everybody go once in their life to see this because it's not at all like a primary. People have to show themselves what they're voting. They, they, they go to the corners. It's like a gym. There are dozens of them around Iowa, and they use spaces like gyms to, to do them. And you're standing in the corner representing the candidate that you you support. But the interesting and fascinating thing that's different from anything else is that you can change your mind in the midst of this and walk to another corner. And this has to do with the speeches that are made uh, that are very brief, like two minutes for each of the candidates. And then someone says, oh, my God, I like, the, uh, I like Joe better. And they go to the other. And it's a fascinating thing to watch, and it's very hard to predict. That is interesting, because, of course, primaries involve secret ballots, so this public display of, of course, democracy so no, this, is very This is kind of old-time democracy, well, like you would have expected during the predates the founders, even. And uh, I, would, uh, I wish more places had it. Nevada has a version, but it's not as good as Iowa. So how critical is Iowa in candidates gaining traction for their campaigns? Oh, it is very critical because it's first. And also because it's, it's a lot of hoopla. Press descends on it. I was there as press. Press can get into some of the caucuses. They're fussy. I, I don't know what it'll be this year. I'll know when I go. I mean, it's you, you don't know who's going to let you in, who's not. But it's, it, 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 you know, it gets reported. It's a sport for the press because the press love it because it's public. They, you know, it's more interesting that way than a primary because then you, you just see, you see people walking in and out, but you don't know what they did. Some people say what they did. Others don't. Here you have it all publicly laid out. So tell us a little bit more about your book, American Refugees, the untold story of the mass exodus from blue states to red states. Well, this is a personal story of what has happened to the many, many people who are moving and have moved uh, over the last few years from principally California, Illinois, and New York, but other blue states, as well to red states. I primarily focus on Tennessee because I did that myself. It's not an easy undertaking to move your family across the country. The people who got up and did it are, tend to have been more constitutional conservatives than the current residents of the red states. This is one of the big shocks of our time, and that's the mystery of, uh, of my book. Book. And that's why I wrote that book, to explain this culture clash that nobody expected to happen and what the results of it are. Roger Simon, columnist for the Epic Times, it was great speaking with you. Great to speak with you. The situation between India and Canada is becoming more tense. India is now telling its citizens to practice utmost caution when traveling there and has suspended visa services in Canada as tensions increase. New Delhi is telling Indians to be cautious because of growing anti-India activities and politically condoned hate crimes in Canada. The Canadian Public Safety Minister responded, saying Canada is just conducting an appropriate criminal investigation. The country is investigating if India was involved in an assassination in June. A leading Sikh activist and Canadian citizen was gunned down in British Columbia. He was working on an unofficial referendum vote, and India has long accused him of links to terrorism. Just this week, both India and Canada expelled diplomats from their respective countries. Well, you know, Evelyn, some analysts are saying that Trudeau is turning a blind eye to extremism has led to this. 
Oh, well, that's interesting. But hopefully, you know, the two countries can resolve this because they have been strengthening ties. Right, like Trudeau's Indo-Pacific strategy aimed at boosting cooperation in the region recently. That's right. We're going to turn to some cultural issues now. Gender ideology is in the spotlight as thousands of Canadians took to the streets yesterday in cities across the country. Protesters stood against what they say are harmful gender policies in schools, while counter-protests also took place. Our reporters were on the scene. The mass rally, known as One Million March for Children, was organized by parents from all over Canada. They accused schools of promoting inappropriate gender concepts and called for upholding parental rights in raising their children. Uh, they are teaching something that is uh, completely wrong. It is not based in fact or science. It is a radical sexual ideology that is harmful. Where healthy body parts are being removed. And then when the child grows up to be an adult, they regret. If you're XY or XX, you're female or male. There's no other gender because I don't want to see other kids corrupted with this. As stated on their website, the campaign advocates for the elimination of the sexual orientation and gender identity curriculum, pronouns, gender ideology, and mixed bathrooms in schools. Because God made two genders, male and female. There's no other gender. It is the parents' job to raise their children in the fear and in the ammunition and in the law and in the ways of God. The concern is the safety and first and foremost the future of the children. Counter-protests also emerged, calling the rallies hate-filled. In Vancouver, verbal clashes broke out between the black-clad Antifa groups and protesters. Police arrived on the scene to maintain order. I'm just here to peacefully protest and show that I care so much about my kids, everyone's kids, that they're, they're yelling and swearing and violent, uh, threatening us, and we're not doing that. In Ottawa, the demonstration remained largely peaceful under heavy police presence, though both sides yelled slogans at each other. In Toronto, some protesters circled those supporting parental rights, but police stepped in promptly to avert violent confrontation. Protesters then continued to march through the downtown area. Children should be allowed to be children, and the sexualization and the ideology that's being, you know, espoused in schools is basically evil. A lot of parents and grandparents and people are waking up and saying, we will raise our children. The event marks one of the largest protests of its kind, following months of debate on transgender issues both in Canada and the U.S. NTD News, Canada. Coming up, more than a dozen authors are suing ChatGPT. The suit follows allegations of copyright infringement. And record store owners are seeing a resurgence in vinyl sales. See what's contributing to the comeback that's coming up. Good to have you back. The looming government shutdown, still looming, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is signaling some hope within his conference. McCarthy said lawmakers were very close to passing a continuing resolution, or CR. That's a short-term agreement to keep the government running. That's right. Congress only has 10 more days to pass a CR and send it to President Biden for his approval. McCarthy also said House Republicans will try again to move forward with a vote on defense spending today. Earlier this week, five Republicans defeated a debate vote for the defense spending bill, which is part of the year-long spending measure. 
Still, if McCarthy is able to get members to unify behind the plan, it is likely to be rough going in the Democrat-controlled Senate. So where do we stand right now with the spending bill and what would a government shutdown mean? A financial analyst explains. To start, we're moving closer to the deadline. Can you start by briefly explaining where the bills are getting stuck right now and what are the tensions there? So um, right now, the um, Republican-led House of Representatives uh, has passed or is about to pass a continuing resolution. The problem is uh, what they pass has to get through the Senate and then signed by the president. You may recall last year, the House of Representatives did pass a continuing resolution. However, the Democrat-led Senate did not uh, vote for it. And as a result, McCarthy had to go back to the House of Representatives and ended up working with the Democrats and the moderate Republicans uh, to get something that the Democrats in the Senate would, would sign. The Republican uh, conservatives in the uh, House didn't like what, what happened, and they said, we're not going to let this happen again. Uh, so it's very difficult now to predict what exactly is going to happen. Right. And now many are looking at a possible, as mentioned, government shutdown. So what would be the impact of that? So I think at this point, I think a shutdown looks likely. Uh, so what would be the impact? You may recall we had about a 35-day shutdown in um, the fall of 2018. We had one in 2011. So what happens is um, the non-essential services of the government shuts down. People will still get paid Social Security. They'll still get paid Medicare. Most of the essential services will, will still operate. What won't operate are things if you apply for a Social Security card or you're applying for a passport, which is also which is already somewhat of a nightmare. But if you apply for a passport, if you want to go to one of the state, the uh, national parks, rather, those kind of things will will be closed. Thank you so much, Michael Buzzler. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Always my pleasure to be here. Game of Thrones creator and 17 other authors have sued ChatGPT maker OpenAI for copyright infringement. This is just the latest legal action by writers worried that AI programs use their copyrighted works without permission. The lawsuit alleges that ChatGPT searches for each author by name, then uses their story to generate, quote, an unauthorized and detailed outline for a prequel. For example, an AI version of A Game of Thrones was titled A Dawn of Dire Wolves and used the same characters from Martin's existing books in the series A Song of Ice and Fire. An OpenAI spokesperson says the company respects the rights of writers and authors and believes they should benefit from AI technology. Moving on, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon says Americans would be making a huge mistake if they believe narratives saying the U.S. economy is booming. I wanted to hear a perspective on this and some ideas to jumpstart the economy, so I spoke with a former chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget. Now we're going to speak with Vance Ginn, the president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Good morning, Vance. Hey, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Do you agree with Diamond's position, disagreeing with this optimism about the economy? 
Well, I do. You know, I think that there are a lot of concerns across the economy, whether you look at retail spending, uh, which is growing just as fast as inflation. So inflation adjusted spending is basically flat. You see inflationary pressures continue to go up. It's up 3.7% year over year. That's two straight months that have been increasing compared to had gone down since 9% last year. So that's also a concerning factor. We have interest rates that are soaring. And, and you know, the, this week, the poverty rate also came out for 2022. And that showed that real house household income was down again. That means it's the lowest since 2018. Um, and so people are suffering across the economy. And this is not a good situation when you have more government spending, more deficit deficits overall, and more money creation in the economy. This is a recipe for a disaster. And there is some troubling news now with the job creation rate slowing down a little bit here too. So what about the Fed's rate hikes? They've been pretty aggressive over the last year. How is that going to affect consumer demand? Well, you know, that's a great point, and it's something that we have been seeing where, you know, the interest rate was 0%, the one that they target, the overnight lending rate between banks, that's now up to 5.5%. Yeah, you have to address the reality of the situation here. According to Deloitte, consumers are worried about their savings and their spending intentions are seeing a downtrend here, but is there any positive in this? Well, you know, I think something you want to look at is when you see inflationary pressures go up, you see the labor market cooling and being cool overall, um, you start to look for, say, for a rainy day. Um, and a lot of these pandemic-related emergency expenditures that on welfare and safety net programs, a lot of those are now expiring and have been expiring over the past year. And that's one reason why we're seeing a dip in a lot of spending as well, because they don't have that inflationary you know, measures with welfare and everything else that's in their pocket like they once had. It's always good to have a little bit of extra savings in the bank. Now, an indicator of consumer confidence puts the reading at about 80, and this is usually indicative of a coming recession. What do you think about this? Yeah, when you look at a lot of these numbers out there, you'll indicate, well, this number maybe should be closer to 100 if you look at the Michigan consumer sentiment. And so if it's closer to 80, then that does indicate a lot of pessimism, you know, not optimism in the overall economy. And I think you'll see that even when you look at a lot of the polls of how Biden's doing with the economy and things of that nature, it's not it's not good. And, and when we see inflationary pressure starting to go back up again, that's going to put pressure on people. And, you know, since President Biden became president, um, the gas prices are still up 50 percent. Food prices are up 20 percent. Inflationary pressures are about 17 percent. And average weekly earnings, they're only up 11 percent. So this is why people can't keep up just over the last couple of years. And this is putting a lot of pressure on households and making them feel less optimistic about the future. So I do think that we're going to have a pretty hard landing. And unfortunately, that's going to mean a lot of job losses across the economy. But I'm hopeful that we can get back to a stronger economy with more pro-growth measures of less government spending, less regulation, and less money printing. And you know what? That will really create more economic prosperity across the country. Some great solutions there. Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting, thank you for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. Mm. It's always great talking to Vance, big free market proponent. Yeah, exactly. And I think he makes a lot of good points there. I mean, but the Fed is definitely optimistic that they have averted a recession. So, who, yeah, like Don said, there is different signs that people should look at. Yes. Well, and they've paused rate hikes for now, but there may be another one in the works. Yeah. All right. And we're moving on now to vinyl records that had resurrected from the grave, surpassing CD sales for the first time since 1989. And today, Sean Marshall visited a couple of New York City's oldest record stores in Brooklyn for a story or two about the store's history. Fifth Avenue Records, open in Brooklyn since 1968, has survived long enough to see a small comeback in the record sales industry. 
The current owner, Ryan Romansky, stated that COVID lockdowns added greatly to the record industry's resurgence. Like movies went up, records went up. It, it's pretty insane just like how much stuff sells now. And like before COVID, I struggled to sell a record that was more than fifty dollars. And now, like I can sell hundred dollar records. Like I sold a two hundred dollar record the other day, and like. I think my highest selling one was like almost $600. And I, I never was able to do that before. COVID lockdowns aren't the only reason for a vinyl comeback. Fred Cohen, the owner of Jazz Record Center, says records are growing more popular with a younger audience. And he's noticed the difference after 40 years of experience. And they're experiencing sound the way it should be heard. Not necessarily through little digital boxes but through the medium that over 100 years ago was created to, to make this sound audible. Jonathan McCall traveled all the way from Ohio to New York City. He's making a priority of shopping for records while visiting. He also mentioned how COVID lockdowns gave many the extra time for vinyl research and curiosity. And it seems like a lot of people went down the avenue of buying lots of records. Um, it definitely, like records have gotten, used records are more expensive now than they were before COVID. The market definitely seems to have exploded. Despite its comeback, vinyl is still far from its glory days. Even so, record sellers are enjoying the renewed interest. Sean Marshall, NTD News. That's pretty good. I mean, I know some small collectors, and I think I understand the appeal. And we were gifted ones, uh, one just not too long ago, but I just don't have a player, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, and records, they look so much cooler than just CDs. That's true, and They're yeah. bigger. I'll have to sit down and actually listen to the difference of the sound between yeah. records and oh, CDs yeah. or oh, yeah. YouTube. Yeah, I, mean, I think I have, but it's been a long, long time, so. I don't really remember. All right, that's all for today's program. We hope you enjoyed our extended program this time. Catch NTD again at noon for NTD News Today with Chris Spears. We will see you tomorrow. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan. Thanks for watching and have a great day.